Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. When Joshua Anderson left home and attended a secular college, the environment bombarded him with skepticism and criticism of Christianity. I wonder if you've had a similar experience. He internalized the general attitude manifested on campus from professors, students, and textbooks to such a degree that he began doubting his faith. He fell into a two-year period of existential despair as he desperately read book after book, trying to find satisfying answers to his nagging anxieties about Christianity. In this episode, he shares how he was able to escape his dark night of the soul and reclaim his walk with God. Now, if you've ever struggled with your own doubts about God's existence or the Bible's veracity or the Christian worldview, this episode will help you understand the mental forces at work as well as the limits of absolute certainty. I know it sure helped me. Here now is episode 361, Paralyzed by Doubt with Joshua Anderson. Well, Josh Anderson, welcome to Restitutio. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Sean. Thank you for inviting me, man. Yeah, I think this is going to be a really interesting time of conversation together. And our topic is looking at the whole question of doubt and your own experience with apologetics. Let's begin by talking about your upbringing. You grew up in a Christian home, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, both of my parents were really strong believers, and I've been really blessed by that. I just, I found that's incredible blessing. But however, I'd say kind of the arc, the story arc of our spiritual life has been just this progression of God sort of leading us progressively out of, you know, sort of unhealthy versions of Christianity to more and more healthy versions. And by that, what I mean is just groups that we were a part of that got more of their identity in their sort of knowledge about Jesus rather than an actual deep and you know, real personal relationship with Jesus and God. When we, were, when we were really little, so much of our faith was based upon the fact that we were kind of the, we have all the answers club, you know? And we sort of viewed ourselves, and we would never describe ourselves this way. We thought of it as we care about truth, which is important, right? You know, we care about doctrinal correctness, which is important. We care about loving God with all of our mind, you know, and honoring him and glorifying him through a study of his scriptures and, and doctrine is important and all these things I, I still agree with and I still believe. It's just we, I think, went blurred from that area to instead of just truth is important to I get my emotional and spiritual life from what I believe rather than who I am believing upon. I see. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. So it was sort of like almost like a form of Gnosticism in this sense, where it was salvation by our special secret knowledge. You know, like we have all the answers and we know this and we've got to figure it out. And the rest of the world is completely in the grip of Satan and it's us and it's them and it's in and it's out and it's the truth and it's all just complete lies. And we're on this good side. And that's what makes us great. And nobody said nobody said that. Right. But it was just sort of all in the unspoken air of my particular religious communities kind of growing up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like 
Yeah, like that Gnosticism, rather than finding that relationship and identity in Christ's work and what Christ has done, we subtly, very subtly found our identity and our worth and our purpose and what we know about what Christ has done, <laughs> and particularly in relation to everybody else, you know. And uh, I think that's it's been a, a story of God redeeming us from that. But that's just idolatry, huh. you know. Um, that's that's you think that's faith and being faithfulness, but actually it's putting your faith in something subtly different from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And He's kind of pulled us out of that slowly as we moved and, and progressive things. And I've, I've just been really blessed to see the Lord's faithfulness as He's carried us on that journey to where now. I feel like I'm in such a better place to approach truth and scripture and doctrine because I'm in a healthy place to approach these things. Because right now, you know, it's not where I'm getting all my life and meaning from it anymore. Now I find that in Christ, ironically, to do it better, Uh you know. Interesting. So what is the downside of such an emphasis on truth? Well, of course, there's no downside in emphasizing actual truth. You know, Jesus himself took these sort of concepts and put them radically in, in himself. So he says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. And basically, I think from a spiritual point of view, what he's done there is he's taken even, you know, all source of all good, you know, any any sort of good or truth or life or anything isn't going to be found separate from God and in, in Christ. It's not like, well, there's this thing called truth. And it can be abstracted out and separated from God. God is the source and the ground of being of truth, right? Right. And so it's not like you can find some sort of good apart from him or some truth apart from him. It's part of his nature that he is the God of truth. And when you abstract that out from him and separate it and tease it apart and say, God, I'm going to search for this truth with a capital T, you know, as if it were I could use it and weaponize it even against God in some way, like atheists will try to do. That becomes idolatry because you're trying to find life and meaning and worth and uh, make a name for yourself as, oh, I'm this great person. I seek truth as if you could even do that apart from him. You can't. So once you realize that, then then now you're free to seek truth, but you are seeking it within you know, the grounds of reality, the way the reality actually is, which is that truth is part of God and you're worshiping him when you're seeking it. So it's just, it's very subtle, John. It's so subtle. But when you make that shift in your spirit and in your mind, then, you know, like I said, you're more free to be able to pursue truth and God uh, in a deeper, more beautiful way, I think. I see. So when you were growing up, was doctrine always something that you really cared about and focused on or was there a moment where you had a conversion experience yeah. I mean what what was the changing point for you yeah I mean I, I was I, I always deeply cared about doctrine and truth and scriptures and I was attending just you know, all these classes that we would take our, my parents would have us memorize you know, the scripture so we just focused on it so much and I loved it <laughs> I absolutely loved it but then when the doubts came, and they came in sort of three different waves, maybe we could talk about it. Uh, but the first real wave, it, it came through. It wasn't actually any intellectual issues at all, really. Uh, it was sort of our community had experienced a sort of a split and a breaking um, where these people who I've trusted so much and they were part of our life and 
and our spiritual community. And to see this sort of dissolve, I had a crisis, a crisis of faith there. Um, and it wasn't really anything to do with the doctrines or the beliefs about it. It was more, more to do with this sort of social dynamic that there was so much love in this community. And there was so much closeness and beauty. And to see it rip and fall apart was like, what, is anything safe? It was like... Now, how old were you when this happened? Um, I may have been, you know, 11 or 12 at this particular time. All right, so that's old enough to have some sort of perception of what's going on. Right, yeah. And to see and all these people, um, it was like, up until that point, I had lived in sort of a womb of certainty, you know, where I was in this safe bubble. And there was only one group, and it was us. And we had the truth. But now, in my particular town, there's been a split and now, at least in, in my little 11-year-old mind, now there's two groups. Wow. And mm. who's right? There used to be this one particular womb of certainty. Now there's, there's two. And there was all this beautiful love, and now there's broken relationship. And so what had happened is, is I think now looking back on it, is that I had a collapse of plausibility structures that were holding up my faith. So, you know... Uh, plausibility structures are just things that make your beliefs seem to be true. And of course, they're neutral in of themselves. You know, you can have plausibility structures that hold up false beliefs or true beliefs. You know, if you're like, for instance, if you're in, in uh, the South in America, like I am, and you're driving around, there's churches on like literally every corner, all these church buildings. Well, that sort of acts as a psychological buttress to your faith of holding it up to say, well, yeah, of course Christianity makes sense because look at all these churches everywhere. You know, they're everywhere. And of course, Christianity is true. So they're just holding up a belief and making it seem more true. Well, it could work the opposite way too. So I used to live in Japan, you know, uh -huh. uh, as a missionary there for a few years. And we would go and on every single corner, almost there's these Shinto shrines just everywhere. There's over a hundred thousand of these shrines in this tiny little country. And they're just little plausibility structures that hold up Shintoism as like, well, yeah, of course, you know, you go to the um, the temple and you offer this, you know, because look, they're everywhere. You know, of course it must be true. So these plausibility structures are just psychologically neutral elements of your life that hold up and make your beliefs seem more true. And when they collapse, to the degree to which your faith was based upon these structures, when they collapse, that's the degree to which your faith is going to collapse. You know, this is why exactly if, you know, if your parents are, you know, you're not really a Christian for your own belief and your faith is really dependent upon your parents, they're acting as sort of a plausibility structure for you, which is why then when, you know, your parents get an awful divorce and then dad all of a sudden becomes an atheist, now you're having a crisis of faith. Well, of course you would. Or the person who um, maybe they have some youth pastor in their life and and they're just this embodiment of faith to them. And they don't maybe realize it, but, but that person can become a plausibility structure for your faith. And if that guy, he has a falling now, he commits adultery and he leaves the ministry or something, then all of a sudden we see these kids are having faith crisis. Hmm. And it's because, again, the degree to which that these plausibility structures are holding up your faith, when they fall down, your faith will fall down. And that's what happened to me. Instead of Christ church, and Christ himself being the object of my faith right. and my personal actual relationship with him, I had a relationship with my community. 
I had this community was the thing that was holding up my religious uh, beliefs. So to the degree that when the community busted and fell apart, then my faith busted and started to fall apart. And that was the first time in my life when I realized, okay, I have to begin to make this my own. I have to start to make it to my own. So I was able to get through that first initial crisis there and sort of the first hmm. time wow. <laughs> of doubting. So how did you make it through as a kid? Were you investigating on your own? Is Christianity really true? Or were you more focused on it? how is it that our group is right and the other groups are wrong? Or what was going through your head then? So it all came to a culmination this one night when I go out into this cow field across from my house. Because, you know, we were living in Arkansas, so there's tons of cow fields. <laughs> so we go out there, and it's like the stars are all up, and uh, it's this beautiful night. I'm out there alone just looking up at the sky, and I just call out to God, like, God, if you're really real and all this is really true, just show yourself to me type thing, you know? Yep, yep. <laughs> Who's had this experience, right? <laughs> You know what happened? What happened? Nothing happened. Just silence. Eerie, dead silence. And I just walked away from that cow field just feeling confused and alone. And the crazy part is it was that moment I had the decision where I've been reading the scriptures where Christ was like, you know, he turns to his disciples and he's like, are you too going to leave me? (laughs) And I had this choice. And I said, you know what, Lord? I've seen enough of your love to know I'm going to keep walking in this direction. And the only thing that healed it was just time, just time and the choice of going on and later learning more about what's, you know, philosophers call the hiddenness of God and the problem of God's hiddenness and realizing why God wouldn't have spoke to me at that time. Because think about it. I was in a, I was in kind of an unhealthy uh, Christian environment And if God were to come down with all this awesome comfort and say, I'm with you, Josh, it's okay, it's all good, you know what? I would just be like, oh, this is great, fine, I'll just stay in this situation. Uh, Because, God, if you're with me, I can do anything, it's fine. But if the sense of your presence is gone here, now I need a question, I need to think, I need to search, I need to find you, I need to look. And that may look like growth, that may look like movement, that may end up in change. You know, and so just with time and seeking him, that first initial phase was able to just solve itself. And, you know, a lot of people, they doubt like this and maybe because they're finding, you know, so say like they particularly are in a Calvinist church or something and they have all these problems and he's thinking, they're thinking about uh, Calvinism and, and these problems about why would God allow this awful evil thing to happen? Not only allow it, why did he particularly cause it to happen? And they're doubting and stuff. Well, Maybe they should doubt <laughs> in that case, right? Um, I'm sorry, Calvinist Interesting. friends. I'm sorry, Calvinist friends, but um, maybe they should. I mean, if you're a Calvinist and you're listening to this, just flip the analogy, right? Just say, okay, the open theist guy at the open theist church when evil happens, and maybe he should doubt. Just flip it. But, you know, maybe your church really is unhealthy and it, and it, and it sucks. <laughs> maybe you should doubt and get out of there. Maybe your beliefs are wrong. Hmm. Maybe you're in what do you want God to do? Come down and show and, and completely like, bypass all the uh, seeking of truth, all the glorifying with your mind, all the hard work of doing theology and just give you all the, this particular answer. No, you have to think and go through it. And so, yeah, so that sort of what happened to me. I was, I had some unhealthy relationships to theology and a lot of my beliefs were false. Wow. But I didn't know it. Yeah. And I never was thrown out of it. 
if God would have just come down and said, yeah, stay right here. It's fine. I'm with you. It's all great. Huh. You know, he used this time to cause me to grow. And I'm thankful for it. I look back now and I'm like, this is great. Wow. So let's fast forward a little bit. What did you do your bachelor's in? Uh, so I did a bachelor's there at the University of Arkansas in classics, you know, classical studies. So I'm just doing Greek and Latin. Okay. So that was your first passion. Why would you want to do that? Well, I just wanted to read the scriptures in the original New Testament Greek. So um, I kind of fell into it. At that point, I didn't know what I was going to major in. And I was one of those kids who just took all the like intro classes or the general ed classes. And But I took Greek in my first semester at college. And I took it every semester after for like eight semesters. So after about two years of still being an undeclared major, I realized, well, heck, I mean, I can just take these few other classes and I'll be a Greek major. So <laughs> I just kind of fell into it uh, that I see. Point. Yeah. So it's almost like you just really wanted to read the Bible, and there wasn't a Bible college nearby that you had thought of, and this was the way to learn that skill. That's huh. right. Interesting. Yeah. And then from there, you went into Fuller in California. And what was that all about? Why did you want to go out there and pick that seminary, and what were you studying there? Yeah, so I did the MA in Biblical Studies at, at uh, Fuller, um, and we kind of, well, we particularly picked Fuller because my wife was in, uh, you know, she was in a PhD program in biochemistry. So we had to find cities that had a seminary and a good biochemistry program together. So that's kind of what led us, uh, that way. Yeah. So at that time I was thinking I was going to do theology and do a PhD in that, but my sort of, uh, desires started changing and I wanted to do ministry rather on a secular campus. Um, and I figured by, you know, sort of PhD in theology from a religious school wasn't going to equip me the best to be able to work and minister on a secular college campus environment. So that's when I switched to doing philosophy. Um, so I went to end up going to Talbot after that and getting a master's in philosophy there, thinking I would go on to PhDs in philosophy and be able to work and be a light on the college campus uh, doing philosophy. And of course, God did change some things up. We ended up doing some mission work in Japan instead. And I'm just now, after coming back to the States, kind of looking at what the next steps are, if God's going to pick up that stream and we're going to go PhDs or what. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about the dark night of the soul and this whole experience. You had made a comment before to me that you had read a hundred apologetics books First of all, there's no way that's true. Right? I mean, who can possibly read that many apologetics books? How many did you actually read? Dude, pretty darn close, I guess. But yeah, probably not actually 100. So yeah, what had happened was, so I had my initial Calfield doubting experience, which we talked about. Then fast forward all these years to where I'm in college now. And this is when I entered my real, actual dark night of the soul. You know, this is when I got to the point I was just in existential despair every single day and laboring just anxiety of saying, is any of this actually true? Is God really there? Is Jesus really raised from the dead? Is this, do I really have this promise of eternal life? Is all of this just made up? And so, you know, I'm just sitting there in this terrible place and it was a secret pain. And so many people who struggle with this sort of doubt, it's sort of this private thing in your brain and you don't want to share it with other because either, either A, you know, your community may not be the safest place to share these things and people just wouldn't get it. 
they wouldn't understand, you know, or B, you're afraid they would understand. And you're suffering so bad in your mind in this that you're saying like, oh, I don't want anybody else to be feeling this way. So you just kind of keep it to your private self, which is which is terrible. That's the place I was there. And for about two years, I had this experience of extreme doubt. And what Satan was trying to do for bad for me, I guess, God ended up turning it for good because it, it drove me to fi- trying to find all these answers. So I just started reading apologetics books and I just literally would have a book with me every day. All day, no matter where I went, I would have some book that I'm reading and I'm just holding it and plowing through it. But you know, Sean, eventually I realized during that time that I was just wiping away the symptom here because I would have some sort of objection or some sort of problem or some thought that I was concerned about or some Bible verse that I was reading that didn't make sense and I was so upset about it. And I would read and I'd find some answer to it. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, actually this makes kind of sense. But then, what about this? And my mind would just churn on to the next thing. I was just, yeah, wiping away at a symptom. you know. And that's when what actually finally got me out of this two-year horrible time was when I realized you know, two different things. Number one, I realized that this was not an intellectual problem at the end of the day. That really there's a deeper emotional and spiritual component to this. That this wasn't intellectual doubt. And knowing the distinction between intellectual doubt and emotional doubt is what opened the door for me to get out of it. And then the second thing was realizing this idol, this lust for certainty that I had had in my life. And so when I figured those two things out, I was able to chart the path, you know, get out of it. So. And this is when you were at the University of Arkansas? Right. Hmm. Right. So it was during my sort of freshman and sophomore years, especially in and what triggered it? Was it running into secular people or critical professors? I think so. I think it's the same as that plausibility structures where now you're around all these people. And I think one element of what could cause it is just being around all this sort of atmosphere at the university that says your faith is stupid. And, you know, you just hear your professor saying Christianity is stupid and you hear your other friends and people in class saying faith is stupid and all the things you're reading in the text are saying faith is stupid this is stupid and after a while it just starts to feel like maybe this is all stupid (laughs) you know why is that well I think what it what the biggest thing that was going on for me was I was just introjecting the beliefs of others around me so what is introjection well we all know and we've heard about projecting, right? You're projecting your beliefs on me. You know, that's not what I believe. You're just putting it on to me. Well, that's projection, right? But you know, uh, psychologists say that introjection is actually insanely more common. Introjection is when I take your beliefs, what you believe, what you feel, and I bring that in on the inside as if it's what I feel. But it's not my beliefs. It's not what I feel. It's not what I think. Um, it's just I'm introjecting it in. So what is this? Well, this system is basically the basis of how God designed us to be able to experience empathy. Right, yeah, that's what it sounds like to me, is empathy and yeah. peer pressure at once. Right, right. And so, you know, so scientists discovered a while back, and you guys have probably heard about mirror neurons. They had known already about emotional contagion. Like that, you know, babies tend to start crying if they hear or see another baby start crying, right? 
So these guys were starting to study emotional contagion and they're hooking up all these like, I don't know what they're called, but electrodes or whatever, people's brains and doing like PET scans and CAT scans on them. And so they accidentally discovered mirror neurons when the person in the experiment was eating ice cream cone. And the monkey who also was hooked up to electrodes was uh, watching him eat this. And as he's sitting there licking and chowing down, the monkey was grabbing his hand and trying to lick it like as if it was an ice cream cone. He just wanted some so bad, like he was feeling it. And then the guy, the scientist accidentally realized, oh my gosh, your brain pattern is firing, eating the ice cream in the same way that the monkey who's just watching you eat it. Wow. It's brain pattern is firing in the same way. So then they started doing all these experiments where they say, okay, if you watch someone take a big cold drink of this awesome cold looking glass of water when you're really thirsty and you hook their brains up to the machines and stuff and watch them, your brain hmm. will fire in the exact same way as if you were drinking the water. This is how God has designed our brains to be able to have empathy. Now, that's all good and well. What happens when I watch my friend or watch an atheist professor and he gets up there and he says, I, and he, he's like, I hate God. And he's mad and he's angry and he's bitter and he hates. And you're watching that. What's happening inside your brain? Well, we know from science, you, if you're if having empathy and you're, the mirror neurons are firing there, that your brain is firing as if you hated God, as if you thought it was stupid. Scientists know that there's a problem here. So there's a paper called Susceptibility to Others' False Beliefs. I'll quote to you a little bit of it. They said, together, our research suggests that the mere presence of social agents, just being around other people, is sufficient to automatically trigger online belief computations, not only in adults, but also in just infants, seven-month-old infants. And once the beliefs have been computed, adults and infants maintain them, even in the absence of that agent. So that means that your brain sees someone else's false belief. Your brain records it and maintains it when they're gone. And then I'll continue the quote, presumably for later use in social interactions, right? So I know how to, how to navigate the world because this person thinks that way. So quote, humans automatically compute others' beliefs and seem to hold them in mind as alternative representations of the environment. As a result, others' false beliefs can influence infants and adults' behaviors similarly to their own true beliefs. So they say the findings that others' beliefs can similarly be accessible as our own beliefs might seem problematic for an individual because it may make one's behavior susceptible to others' beliefs that don't reliably reflect the current state of affairs. So what is this all saying? Basically, this research on mirror neurons and interjection is showing that when you go to an environment like that college campus and you're seeing all these other people's beliefs, that your brain is constantly recording in the back of your mind this little atheist who's going to live in the back of your head now, representing an alternative map of reality, saying, well, what if the world was like this instead? And your brain records it and keeps it back there. And so what interjection is, is when you start to become confused between what I think, what I actually think is true, and what just feels like maybe it could be true. Right? So this is why, as um, if you were to ask me while I was going through this time, like, okay, Josh, you know, what's your knockdown intellectual argument against Christianity? Like, what did you, what did you read or hear that, you know, you said, therefore God doesn't exist, and you think, oh, God is probably true, and you're worried about it. What is it? I would have said, well, I mean, 
I don't really have one. Wow. <laughs> it just feels like, what if it's all wrong? Yeah, it's really interesting, and it really helps me to understand why you're such an epistemology guy just in general, because this experience is something you look back on later on, and you're like, what the heck was that? How do I understand that better? I gather you're a planting a fan? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> kind of hear that a little bit with this plausibility structures and whatnot. This is not well known. I would imagine in Christianity in general, this phenomenon, because we tend to think of ourselves, or at least I'll speak of myself, I tend to think of myself as an intellectual castle with a moat around me and a wall around me, and I decide when to put down the bridge and open the gate and let ideas in, and I decide when to put it up and insulate myself, and they can't trick me into buying stuff by bombarding me with commercials, with subliminal messages. My friends are different than I am, but I can filter that out, and I have control over my epistemological faculties and situation. But you're saying, wait a second, only if you're a sociopath, Sean, is that even possible? Right. Or, or you're in that womb of certainty because your group happens to... If you're in a homogeneous community. Exactly. Your group doesn't read anybody outside. It doesn't think anything exactly like you. But the very moment you go to college, per se, and you happen to read now and be exposed to these other views, um, the, your empathy system, if it's working properly, then you will start to feel what all these other people... You know, of course you're not doubting. You know, and then I confuse it to think that I'm the one who's doubting it. But really, I'm not doubting it. It's just my empathy system's working properly. Wow. That is so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, and this is why C.S. Lewis, he says, there's this quote. So he was the one who cued me into the distinction between intellectual doubt and emotional doubt. So intellectual doubt, if, if you know, there's some problem and you're like, hey, what does this mean? And I don't understand it. Well, you answer the problem and the intellectual doubt goes away. But... If you answer it and then now it just, you know, gets reloaded with a new thing and you're in this sort of amorphous doubt cloud where it just feels all bad and then all of a sudden your mind's grabbing onto this then that then this and that and just feeling it, then maybe there's a the, the problem is your state that you're in, not the particular question that you're asking. Because if you answer the question and then it's just more and more and more and this never ending what if, then, then you're in an emotional situation. So he has this quote where he says, suppose a man's reason once decides that the weight of evidence is for Christianity. He's, Lewis says, I can tell that man what's going to happen to him in the next few weeks. There will come a moment when there's bad news, or he's in trouble, or he's living amongst a lot of people who don't believe it, and all at once his emotions will rise up and carry a sort of blitz on his belief. Lewis says, I'm not talking about moments at which any real new reasons against Christianity turn up. Those have been faced. That's a different matter. I'm talking about moments when a mere mood rises up against it. And you know, who's experienced that, right? I've totally, but what, what, what happens when chronic emotional doubt that turns into existential despair is when that mood is becoming and taking over your whole life, where it's like every moment you're sitting there and it becomes more of like a, a state of fear. And you're just living there in this sort of painful experience. It's, it's, it's awful because you may even be sitting there saying, I think Christianity is true, just like I was. You say, like, I don't have any of these reasons against it, but it just feels like it isn't. And you're sitting there thinking, like, just one more apologetic book 
Just one more answer. Yeah, this one's going to have the ultimate answer. Yeah, but instead, you're just still stuck in the problem. And so when I realized that, I was able to get out. And so, you know, and figure out that, hey, there's a problem here because I have a discrepancy between my head and my heart. You know, there's a split. It's like also Lewis said, it's not reason that's taking away my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It's my imagination and emotions. The battle is between faith and reason on the one side and emotion and imagination on the other. Because I have this ability of my brain, you see, to conjure up alternative explanations for anything. And I can't turn that off until you can grapple with the fact that your mind will be able to spin up an alternative explanation you know, for any particular thing, you'll never finally be at rest because you have to realize an alternative explanation does not mean a refutation. And what C.S. Lewis book is that you're quoting from? Yeah, that's from Mere Christianity. Uh, where he talk- Oh, really? Yeah, he talks that huh. bit in there about emotional faith, or I'm sorry, emotional doubt, there's intellectual doubt and the mere mood and all that. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. I've read that. I don't remember that part, but uh, it was a long time ago, so it's not so surprising. So how did you get out of it? You just started to realize you were being influenced by this interjection phenomenon. And after realizing that, you were able to steer your way out of it? Or what happened? Yeah, once I had this tool in my belt of being able to distinguish between an intellectual problem and an emotional spiritual problem, then I was able to address the actual root causes of what was causing the doubt. It's sort of like Pascal He has this quote, I love it. He says, put the world's greatest philosopher on a plank that's wider than needs be. But if there's a precipice below, although his reason may convince him he's safe, his imagination will prevail. Right? It's, it's great. So what I realized at this point was my plank of evidence and reason for all these things that I've been reading in all these apologetics books for two years. I realize my plank is much, it's wider than it needs to be. I have grounds for belief. I have experience of God. I have all these reasons and arguments and evidence and everything. And it's wider than it needs to be. But my problem is that if I peer over the edge, you know, my imagination and emotion prevails. Why? Because I realize how much is at stake here. If we're wrong, if I'm wrong, that means I'm dead forever. It means everyone I love will be gone forever. It means life ultimately is meaningless and all the work and things that I try to accomplish and do, you know, will end up just in the heat death of the universe and not make any change at all. It's so much is at stake here that you look over the precipice and realize it's an eternal black hole abyss, you know, that that emotion rises up and, and, and starts to play a blitzkrieg on your mind. And the plank starts to feel really small and you're scared, right? But, hey, the plank is wider than needs be, man. You can break dance on that thing. (laughs) It's fine, right? It's fine. You're safe as far as that goes. But that's the distinction there. So once I realized that, I was able to make the distinction between, do I really doubt that this is true? Or is it that I'm afraid that it's not? Because, you know, in philosophy, we talk about propositional attitudes. And these are attitudes you can have towards a proposition, just beyond I believe that X, you know, I believe that God exists. Um, Beyond I believe it, you can also have propositional attitudes. You could say I, maybe Satan could say, I hate that God exists. A propositional attitude could be doubt. I doubt that. 
But there's a difference between I doubt that X and I fear that X. And I realized a lot of my problem wasn't even so much that I actually doubted it. You know, it was that I was afraid of what it would mean if it weren't, if it wasn't true. And that sort of anxiety, that's a different problem that's going to have a different set of solutions than just reading an apologetics book. But that anxiety masquerades itself as if it was an intellectual problem. So you keep trying to go on to one more thing, one more thing, you know, and it doesn't solve it. So that's why, you know, that sort of dynamic then has to be solved with the sort of tools that solve it. And when you once you realize that God is not a proposition, you know, he's a person. He's a real person that I'm interacting with. Then that means that my if I'm going to have relationship and faithfulness and reliance and trust upon him and these sort of things that that that, that means the dynamics of faith now become interwrapped into the inner dynamics of interpersonal relationships. It's not just the dynamics of intellectual uh, propositional truth and belief and evidence and reason. It's also the sort of dynamics of, do I trust you as a person? Do I know you? Do I, am I afraid? And, and these sorts of things. And so that's a spiritual solution. That's a relational solution. And when I was in the midst of the doubt, anybody would say anything like spiritualize it or talk about, you know, that it could be an emotional thing. My mind would be like, oh, well, pfft. Isn't that convenient? Wow. You know, like, of course you would think or say that because I'm struggling with these real issues here. Well, yeah, and, and I was. I was struggling with real problems and thinking about them. And I studied and I got real answers to each one every time. But the deeper issue was still there. So finally realizing that and being able to move into trust in the light of that uh, was what healed it. And uh, the biggest key in that at that particular point the biggest key that moved me forward was realizing this lust for certainty that was driving me, this idolatrous lust for certainty. Because I would say, look, God, I, what I really want to know is I want to know that I know this is true, that Christianity is true and it's real and all the doctrines are right. And I want to be absolutely not just know it. I want to have certainty that I can't be wrong. And you know why? What was underneath that desire? It's really an idolatry because I was saying to myself, because then if I have certainty, then I'll be safe. Right? I see. Yeah. Then uh, what you're doing at that particular point is replacing the person of God with something else, really. And, you know, I don't have that certainty. You know, that's the history of philosophy is realizing the epistemological crisis since Descartes and then on through Kant and that's that we don't have certainty. For almost anything we believe. And you know what? I'm not sitting here freaking out about that. Like, I, I don't know with 100% certainty that George Washington was the first president of the United States. I mean, I think I know that. But I, I'm not 100% sure. You know, it could be that he, you know, really wasn't. There was a big uh, conspiracy. You know, I could say, I'll, you know, you have this never-ending what if, where I just say, well, well, what if all the textbooks are just wrong? What if the letters were forged at that time? And what if, you know, but... I mean, come on. Nobody bases their beliefs on the mere possibility that something could be wrong. You base your beliefs on the probability that it is true, not the mere possibility. So if we don't live our life by certainty, and, and I'm not requiring that for any other of my beliefs and all of my belief you know, system that I have, only this particular one, I'm, I'm arbitrarily raising the bar to say I need certainty here. 
Why am I doing that? Well, because it's idolatry, because then I'll be safe because of how much is at stake. And that's what that prayer is. When you're asking God to do that, he'll never, he'll never answer that prayer. And the reason it's like, it's like a totem pole, you know, Indian American Indian religions, they would have the totem poles, right? And the highest God is on the top of the totem pole, you know? What I was doing is I was saying, okay, God, I need you to come down from the top of the totem pole, the very highest, most important, biggest, and, you know, object of my faith and everything good flows from you. I need you to come down and come up under my certainty, my certain knowledge. I need you to put my certainty up there on the top and I need you to, you know, show yourself in this cow field or I need you to write, you know, in the sky that Josh, I'm real or I need to do, give me all this irrefutable evidence that it couldn't possibly be wrong. Uh, and then... I'll be able to believe in you. Yeah. That's just, that's just textbook idolatry. It's a lust for certainty. You know? Yeah. The big point you're making about safety reminds me of idolizing finances, which for some folks, that's a real temptation because we want financial security. We want to know that even if the stock market <laughs> crashed, I'd still be okay. Or even if I lost my job, I wouldn't be out on the street or any number of other unpredictable scenarios, but we want to have security. At the end of the day, though, if our finances is what we go to for security and safety, then that just is idolatry. That's God's job to provide that level of security. And if certainty is in that position, then yeah, you're right. It is idolatry because our devotion, our sense of security, our sense of well-being is going to something or someone else other than the Creator who alone can provide it. So I, hear, I understand what you're saying here. Now, I mentioned to you a little while ago about Blaise Pascal and his Night of Fire. And now this happened back in the year 1654. Yes. This illustrious scientist who had this God experience and wrote it down and hid it away in his house jacket until after he died, and it was later discovered you had mentioned to me that you had had some sort of similar type of experience. Well, could you talk about that, and what was that all about, and how did that fit into your overall story? Yeah, sure. I've, I've had a, actually a couple experiences of incredible meeting with the person of God himself, and uh, rather than the idea about him or my beliefs about him or propositional like things about him, I, just, I met him. Probably the most powerful was after the, towards the end of my time of real serious emotional doubting in college there, I actually had a dream. And in this dream, it was the first time in my entire life, you know, I'm sitting here, I think about God every single day of my life, basically, until I'm at this point, like in my 20s. And it's the first time I ever had a dream about God, which is in itself interesting. But he was there and he was walking sort of beside me. He was really big and and tall, but I couldn't quite see him, but he was there walking with me. And I asked him this question. I was like, Lord, but what about this? This doesn't make any sense. And then his response came back immediate and it blew me completely away. Or I was, I was just it, like he flipped my entire question upside down to realize that I was completely approaching it from the wrong way. And it was just his wisdom. And beauty just struck me so fast. And the timber and quality of his voice. It's so hard to explain, Sean, but it was basically like he was pure, hot, white love itself. And I just felt in the timber of his voice and the, and, and the tone and everything in his presence exuded 
one million percent acceptance to me and love and goodness and kindness in his tone the way he asked it not a hint of malice or like you idiot it was just a perfect and it was like i was struck so much by his wisdom and his response and his beauty and i was everything in me was drawn desirous of him and like looking at him and it's like i couldn't believe how awesome he was and how much love he was and then i woke up and i'm just in sweats and just i'm just immediately drawn to worship like god you really are that 100%, 1,000% love. You really are that amazing. And my whole body felt tingly and white hot and in sweats and drawn to worship. And what's so interesting is that I had never thought about God in that way before. It was just a mere concept. Like I would answer the Bible test right if you asked, is God love? You know, and I would have checked, yes, God is love. But it was a concept. I did not emotionally or relationally experience him in that way until that dream and it completely changed my really I it was like it blew out my mind of that he was really is he really that good he really is I couldn't believe it you know in philosophy we talk about different ways of knowing like there is propositional knowledge where I know that God exists but then there's also different types of knowledge like know-how knowledge I can know how to fix a car you know or I can know how to speak in English which is different from knowing that right but the third type of knowledge is knowledge by acquaintance and this is when i just know the object so i can say like i can know that god exists i can know that god is good i can know that all these things about him but if you just know him know him the actual person that's a different form of knowledge and that's what i experienced you know on that day that knowledge by acquaintance and it changed my my whole life, you know. And what was that other one that you mentioned? There was another one. Well, I have I've had other experiences like this too, where I've just felt God's emanating presence so incredibly real to me. And I've had I've had so many experiences where it would just be ridiculous for me to doubt now. Though sometimes I still do, but it's crazy. Like for instance, instance, you know, whenever we were considering moving to Japan, uh, we were praying. God, should we do this? And this, this decision doesn't make any sense. You know, we just had a kid. We just bought a house. It doesn't make any financial sense. It doesn't make any whatever. But we felt like God was maybe telling us, you know, to go to Japan. So I was, I, I was like, well, I don't, I don't know. And I was doubting myself a lot. But I felt like God said, just apply. He didn't say go, just apply. So I applied. And that week, I I prayed, Lord, will you please, you know, let us know. Should we, should we make this huge decision? The week that I'm praying, my brother happens to find a letter that was a time capsule hidden in this jar in my parents' library behind these books. And he pulls out this letter and he showed showed it to me. It had been written 16 years before. And it says in there like, hey, you know, uh, I'm Josh and whoever finds this letter, you know, I just want you to know about my life and here's my first girlfriend and all this embarrassing stuff. (laughs) But it also says in there, like, you know, when I grow up, I don't know what I want to do, but I know that I've always loved Japan, and when I grow up, I'm going to move to Japan and tell them about God. This is just insane to me because I have no memory, Sean, of writing this letter. I have no memory of saying I wanted to be a missionary or move to Japan. I mean, I, I did love Japan my life, but I don't remember ever thinking that way. And uh, what are the odds 
that a letter has been sitting in a jar for 16 years. And the week we find it is the week that we're praying, should we go to Japan, right? It's just, it's crazy. But so I've had experiences like this in my life, but you know what? You could still doubt that, right? You could still doubt it and say, well, maybe it's just crazy odds that I just so happened to. And this goes back to Pascal. See, he, he talks about the hiddenness of God and about how Pascal talks about how God has purposely designed the world in such a way to make it possible for you to doubt in that way. Why? To enable freedom of will and free choice, to make relationship actually possible. So Pascal says, you know, there is enough, he says, quote, there is enough light to see for those who want to believe and enough darkness to blind those who don't. So if you want to see God, if you want to see him, there is enough light. There is enough reason. There is enough evidence. There is enough open experience of him. But God has purposely designed the world in such a way that you can doubt it if you want. You can push it away. You can decide to not seek him because that makes choice real. That makes your ability to have a relationship real. The hiddenness of God is sort of like you know when our kids started walking you know right before they're toddlers and they're just learning to walk you know if you put them down in the room stand them up there in the middle and you say okay here walk to me come on come here and uh if you're too close to them what happens they just fall on you right they're like oh dad and they fall on you but if you put them in there in the middle of the room and you stand like you know 10 feet away and you're too far from them you're like come on come on what happens they just kind of sit back down in the middle you know <laughs> they don't want so you have to find that right distance where you're close enough but far enough away that the child makes a choice and and they come and they they walk to you they make steps that's exactly how god has designed evidence and reason and our experience of him and his hiddenness he is close enough that if you reach out if you seek if you knock if you ask you don't give up you keep knocking keep seeking keep asking you will find the door will be opened but don't be looking for that lustful, that lust for certainty, you know, trying to find the safety in that apart from it because we don't have it, you know, and and it's yeah, actually yeah. good for our growth that we don't. Very good. Let me ask you this. I know you have kids. I have kids. Mine are a little older than yours, but they're not in college yet. Would you recommend that people stay in the womb of certainty longer by attending a Christian college instead of going to a secular school? Uh, or is a secular school better because it makes possible your experience? And, you know, I had certainly not an identical experience, but I did go through a period where I went deep into apologetics because I had to at the engineering school I was in, and I was surrounded by all these scientists, and they're all like, God is dumb. And this quest for me strengthened my faith tremendously. So what do you think about when kids are in their junior year of high mm. school and they're trying to figure out where to go? Would you steer them to a, mm. a Christian school or a secular school, or what would you think there? Well, I'd say to the parents, before they get to the junior year, you got to start way earlier than that in this sense. Because I think the reason I ha- one of the reasons I had such a hard pop was because I had been so isolated. And so what you got to do is, even when they're way younger, it's sort of like when you get a, a vaccine. When you give someone a vaccine, you're giving them a little bit of the bad stuff, right? 
but it's a weaker and it's a small, it's a small version, but you're inoculating them to it by exposing them to some of the illness or the disease or the virus or whatever it is. So when you're dealing with your kids, you can't just protect them in this isolation bubble. You have to inoculate them by giving them some sort of small experience of alternative worldviews. And then in a safe environment, teach them how to grow and think through that early on. So that's that's huge, you know, because if you just try to completely separate them from it, they won't grow that muscle. You know, they won't be able to do it. And the other thing I'd say is this is part of the human ex- experience. Every single person is going to have to make their faith go from their parents' faith to your own. I had this experience, but my experience isn't super uncommon. Even like uh, John Bunyan, I was reading in his autobiography, and this is, you know, back in the 1600s, way be- even before the Enlightenment and even before all these problems, and there was, you know, big secular colleges or whatever. He still had this experience. I'll, I'll read to you real quick. He said, first he had these unexpected thoughts. It just came upon him for no reason at all. And it began slowly, but then whole floods of blasphemies, both against God and Christ and the scriptures, they poured upon my spirit to my great confusion and astonishment. These blasphemies were such that they stirred up questions in me against the very being of God. Like, does he exist? And his only beloved son as to whether they were in truth a God or Christ and whether the holy scriptures were not rather just a fable and a cunning story that the whole really be the holy pure word of God. So basically, and they said this experience happened to him for about a year. So... <laughs> It just came upon him, these doubts, these thoughts. And there's a spiritual element there. But notice, um, this was before there were secular colleges. And John Bunyan still had this experience. So there isn't going to be some sort of foolproof, bulletproof way uh, to stop this experience from happening to some people. You know, sometimes the dark night of the soul just descends on you for no particular reason at all. And you don't know why. And it's coming upon. And so in that case, you have to go back to the fundamentals of teaching trust and rooting out idols in in your heart and your kids' hearts and teaching them to hold on to the person of Christ himself and to know him. Because to the extent that their faith is put in anything else, when that other thing fails them, and it ultimately will, whether it's my certainty, my beliefs, my doctrinal package is the right one, and then that gets hit, their faith gets, gets hit. So driving into them to turn to Christ himself, you know, as a person will provide that safety net for when all else fails and they fall, then they can turn to him and he will catch them and he will be able to make them stand. Very good. You know. All right. Well, thanks for talking with me today. Any, any final words for anyone who's currently going through a period of doubt? What would you say? Yeah, I normally say I under, if somebody's going through this, I say, I know you're suffering. I know it's hard. And I know that's painful. Um, but look at me, man. I'm, I am now at the place I've come through this time and this year. And now I'm, I'm up there where I have my confidence and my sight, not my actual certainty, but my psychological certainty is up in the 90s. Where I'm like, I'm 95% sure. I know all this is actually real. Um, so I would just tell them, you know, feelings and that level of psychological certainty, it will ebb and flow. It will go down, but it can come back up. So don't go by feelings. You know, and instead, you need to keep your heart soft. Make sure your heart is soft, those propositional attitudes. I believe that God exists. Well, make sure you're not mad at him. You're not mad that this is happening to you. And keeping your heart where your questioning turns into, from questioning, it turns into accusation. 
and your heart becomes subtly where not you're not sitting on the same side like my dream where you're walking along on the side of God talking and asking this question instead you're opposing him pointing a finger at him and grilling him about it it's so subtle when you become angry and your heart changes so be be on guard guard your heart in this particular time and then look to those spiritual and emotional elements look to those idols that could be in there and hold fast hold fast and don't stop because i know how it feels you want to stop reading scripture stop going to uh you know church or wherever stop reading uh the bible stop praying because it feels so hard it feels bad it's confusing don't stop those things keep putting yourself in the sort of situations where god will be able to speak god will be able to move you know uh, we will be able to connect with him um, and hold fast awesome yeah. well thanks josh i appreciate you talking with me today absolutely sean i appreciate appreciate your time thank you well, that's it for this interview. If you'd like to find out more about Josh Anderson, he's got a five-part evangelism class on Restitutio called Announcing the Kingdom. I've got a link to that in the show notes, or you could just scroll through your feed and find episode 315, where that class begins. Also, you can get some contact information for Josh on his blog, joshuawilsonanderson.wordpress.com. Link to that in the show notes as well. If you'd like to ask a question or you have any comments, you can come on to restitutio.org and find episode 361, Paralyzed by Doubt, with Joshua Anderson, and leave your remarks there. I know that for me, I certainly learned a lot during this interview, and uh, it is an important subject to wrestle with. Doubt can also be a good thing for us. It can be a virtue, especially when it helps us to doubt weak beliefs that we need to strengthen, and also doubt beliefs that are wrong and that we need to discard, uh, as well as practices of our faith that are wrong. Um, So I think doubt is really a double-edged sword. It can really help us. It really can be a servant. Uh, It can also paralyze us and send us into anxiety and despair. So it really is an interesting topic to consider, uh, and I I really appreciate Anderson's time in talking about this today. I also wanted to read out a comment from an article— on Rest Studio, The Bible versus Racism, where Kenny writes in saying, Great article, as Christians, there should be no room for racism in our thinking. Amen, Kenny. That really was the point of this article. Uh, he continues, While the Old Testament could possibly be read in a way that exalts certain peoples over others, the New Testament is quite clearly opposed to that idea. I've often thought that Christians should do more to overcome racism and be helping to build greater unity among different people groups. Sadly, most church services have very little diversity, and many would almost appear to be segregated. And because of that, Dr. King once said that church was the most segregated institution. Sadly, decades later, that still remains largely true. I'm not sure I have the answers, but I am interested in helping bridge the gap that there appears to be within Christianity in regards to this issue. Yeah, Kenny, you know, I think this is something that definitely is regional. I know that in my part of the country, we have an integrated service. It's not homogeneous. We have people from different ethnicities, different ages, different, uh, even different nationalities that are part of our service. And, uh, you know, I don't think, like, say, for example, if you live in Africa, you should beat yourself up for not having white people in your service. Uh, well, there just aren't that many white people around, so why would that be a big issue? 
Conversely, if you live out in the middle of the United States where there aren't that many black people or Asians or people from Hispanic cultures and you have all white people in your service, you shouldn't beat yourself up for that either. I I think basically, really, the church should reflect the kind of people that are living in that area and that we should do what we can to invite and and welcome people and help people to feel welcome who come from different backgrounds. Now, I know there's going to be cultural differences. If you go to, say, like around me, we have lots of Korean churches. You know, part of their reason for separating out is that they're first-generation immigrants, and their English isn't that good, and they really want to be able to attend a service that is in the Korean language. Uh, And I know there are, in some places, Spanish churches that are very similar to this, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, if I had to immigrate to another country, I would definitely gravitate toward other churches that do speak my mother tongue over against churches where maybe I'm not catching every fifth word because I'm new to the language. Um, I think we should have, uh, I I think that sort of thing is just fine. It's just sort of a necessity of the facts of the matter, but uh, that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about here where churches are in some way putting up barriers to people of other races or looking down on people of other races. And that sort of behavior is absolutely unacceptable. We need to recognize the diversity in the body of Christ today and God's final desire in the end to have people from every tribe, nation, and language to be part of his kingdom. And so racism is a sin and it does not belong in Christianity today. Uh, whatever kind of racism we're talking about, it just doesn't it doesn't make sense on a biblical worldview. On another article called Abraham's Audacious Faith, John Raftos writes in, Thanks, matey. Uh, That's my best Australian accent. Uh, I know it's terrible. I'll just continue with my regular New York accent. Thanks, matey. Even though I appreciate all of the intellectual stuff you compile, and indeed I devour as much of it as I can, such as the recent series on the history of the Bible, yet I found this simple presentation very refreshing to my faith. A great reminder of the need to be patient And even in the face of seeming great odds, God is still interested in us as individuals. And in the end, we will gain our reward. Keep up the good work. You have already created a great legacy of spiritual food, yet I think this is probably only a small part of what you have to offer. Looking forward to the future and the probable chaos in the world, your sight will be a beacon people will look to for spiritual guidance from God's word. Valerie Fitzsimmons also wrote in on that article. Great sharing. Thanks, Sean. I love having your perspective on the Bible as it is so different from mine and really adds to my understanding and pleasure in God. Well, thanks, John and Valerie, for writing in. That that article was called Abraham's Audacious Faith, and it was really sort of a meditation inspired by Soren Kierkegaard's book, Fear and Trembling, which is a Christian classic, although fairly controversial. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but what I, what's so great about that book and that inspired me to write this article is that Kierkegaard says that Abraham's faith is not some sort of like boring, wimpy, or pedestrian activity. No, it is he is the knight of faith who heroically has faith that sets a standard, a very high standard for what it means to have faith. And really, we should be looking up to Abraham, certainly not down on him, for how He was able to ultimately trust in God in the hardest of times. So if any of you are interested in that article or the previous one, The Bible Versus Racism, you can get those at restitudio.org. Those are not in the podcast feed because they're articles. Uh, I've got a little menu on the top where you can click on articles and then 
And then you have to click on short articles from there in order to find these, because these are not full-length scholarly essays. They're just sort of uh, devotional in nature. I'm also looking forward to next week. I interviewed Brandon Duke and talked about the subject of God's hiddenness, the problem of evil, and how we can make sense of suffering in the world. And it looks like that's probably going to be a two- or maybe even three-parter, probably a two-parter, podcast interview, so stay tuned for that. It'll kind of dovetail in a little bit with what we've talked about here, but, you know, striking new ground as well in how we think about this problem. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org. I'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.